Welcome, this is Anthony Haynes, I'm Creative Director of Frontinus Limited. Welcome to the Grey Lit Cafe podcast brought to you by Frontinus Limited. Frontinus is a communications consultancy focused on engineering, infrastructure, sustainability and research. Now, looking at the download figures for our podcast, they tell us clearly that the episodes that our listeners most like to listen to are interviews. So I'm delighted to say that's what we have lined up for you today. Now, in the discussion of grey literature, I think broadly there are three perspectives. You can focus on how grey literature is produced, how it's managed and how it's consumed. And um, especially where management of grey literature and organisation provision of grey literature is concerned, we like to hear from information scientists and librarians because they tend to be the people that know a lot about this stuff. So I'm delighted to say our guest today falls into that category. His, fac- his job title is faculty librarian and it's John Barbrook who works at the University of Lancaster. So thank you very much, John, for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to have you. I've been wanting to interview ever since I first came across you um, via Twitter, I believe it was. So some good things come out of Twitter. Um, Now, you're a faculty librarian, so you're providing for um, students and for academics and perhaps some other kinds of users as well at the University of Lancaster. The first thing I'd like to to find out about is what kind of guidance do you offer us and and, and offer? And and behind that question is for old people like me, you say the word library, you tend to think of a stack of books. And, (laughs) you know, I think our modern conception of libraries has got a little bit way beyond that. So um, what what sort of guidance do you do you offer? Well, I hardly touch books. So uh, many of our faculty librarians, we don't really work as much with the books. I'm a content faculty librarian, so I work a little bit more than others. But a lot of our support we've offered is actually in person. So we do many, many one-to-one sessions where we discuss Mm -hmm. people's researching research. I work mainly with systematic reviews. That seems to be the vast majority of my work. And also, I'm the grey literature was actually something that we didn't offer as robust uh, guidance on Mm. last year. We did have some. It was included in literature searching guidance but we had some critiques we had students come and say to us we need more guidance on uh, great literature and uh, we need more information we we can get one-to-one sessions with you to explain but we need to be able to have something we can follow uh, and the reason for this is yes. qualitative systematic reviews students are uh, students and researchers mm-hmm. are producing a lot more qualitative systematic reviews now and subjects such as realist reviews. Yes. So part of that is always you should have a really robust search of the grey literature. So we needed to have a very robust guidance for searching the grey literature. Yeah. I'd love to follow up with you in a moment on what you just said. Um, but before we do that, perhaps we could just backtrack a bit to the more general questions of guidance. Um, I mean, uh, without worrying about grey literature specifically, uh, just in general, what are the kinds of guidance that you find your users most most want or most value? We mainly offer um, libguides, uh, library guidance. So we have a number mm-hmm. of different libguides. These are quite popular, so we've actually made some of them Creative Commons, so other users, other libraries can copy them. Ones like our Systematic Review LibGuides. But we take a slightly different slant on our guidance, which maybe other institutions do, because there was recently, I have to still find this paper, I keep losing it, I read it and then forgot it. Um, but it had some very valid criticism <laughs> that us librarians are very good at writing guidance which signpost people. 
which pushes you towards mm -hmm. yeah. other resources and other libraries. And it becomes a bit of a circular economy. <clears throat> so what we've done is we produced pathways. So pathways right. from A to B to C on how to do, firstly, a systematic review. Right. And now we're producing how to produce a grey literature in a pathway, how to do a high-quality grey mm -hmm. literature search. Great. And how would you distinguish between uh, uh, pathways and the previous sort of you know signposting guidance that you were providing? Um, signposting, it doesn't really take a lot of ownership of what you've written. It's mm. basically saying... You're going to do, for instance, a grey literature search and a worldwide focus. This is where you should read. But a signposting, it takes more of a structure. It's saying, you want to do a grey literature search. First thing you should do is this. Read this yes. and do this. Interspersed with maybe yes. videos and guidance on actually doing that. So if it's a search for yes. a certain resource, there will be the guidance immediately there. Yeah, yeah. It takes a little longer to produce. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm sure that's right. I mean, I, I, I like to produce protocols on how to do things. In fact, we, um, we've got a, a, an episode recorded on protocols, but I'm aware that not everything can be easily reduced to sort of, here's step one, here's step two. <laughs> There's often a lot of thinking to be done um, before you can get anywhere near that. Now, I'm really interested. I didn't know you were going to mention systematic reviews, but I'm very glad you have, because what I've discovered looking at social media is there's a huge range of opinions opinion on this so i've come across people who say is it okay to have grey literature in systematic reviews or should uh, should should systematic reviews contain literature uh, grey literature i've i've definitely encountered occasionally the attitude that oh no systematic reviews should not contain grey literature they're incompatible and Perhaps to a lesser extent, I've encountered the view that, well, actually, if, you, if it's really going to work as a systematic review, it, it needs to contain grey literature. So, so fascinated you've raised it. And any uh, insights you can offer us on how you sort of try and see your way through these problems would be fascinating. I, I've, I've got a very good anecdote about that. I don't know if you have the time, but um, yes, a long do, time yeah. ago, back when I was significantly um, uh, younger, maybe, um, and this ties into decolonisation yeah. as well. I used to produce guidance for hospitals and um, for service guidance. And I produced uh, some service guidance, which was really high quality, I, I thought. I thought, brilliant, I've worked really hard on this. Mm -hmm. Presented it to the uh, consultant doctor who was working on the hospital guidance. And he said, it's useless for me. It's absolutely useless. Right, so that's pretty alarming. He was being yeah, nice yeah. about it, but he basically said, I can't use this. <laughs> and I was like, right. but it's brilliant. We, three librarians have worked yeah. on this. He goes, yes, but then it's going yes. to be about internal, external validity. He says, what you've done here is internally valid. It's brilliant, but I can't use it because it's not externally valid. Right. It, was it was a piece on certain um, approaches to a, a clinical condition, but the group he was looking at was recent immigrants to the UK. And he said, it's all very good, but I need something with a worldwide focus. You need to search through grey mm. literature in other countries. And that makes it externally mm. valid. So this piece of work, which says something really well, you know, it comes to a very good conclusion mm. that this would be the approach. Actually, the grey literature will add to it, similar to a mixed method systematic review, which is both qualitative and quantitative. The qualitative is the statistics. It says this is this, you know, and the quantitative is more people's feelings, you know, opinions. Yes. So it's, yeah. this yeah. is effective and this is effective in, people will actually be happy with this. 
this is how people will actually think this is acceptable. Well, it's a fascinating area because I think as we come on to, it, it's one thing to, to get that far and say, actually, we need to search for gay literature from, from elsewhere. Quite another thing to know how to do that, as I discovered when I was preparing for my interview with um, Sarah Bonato, particularly. So perhaps we could perhaps we could move on to that because I'm, I ought to just say, incidentally, um, I'm sort of raising a problem like, well, we don't all know how to search for that. But before I get to the problem, let's just look at the good side of it which is to me this is one of the things that actually makes great literature really interesting I mean quite apart from just the ethics of it I just kind of by, by not telling myself oh you shouldn't read great literature you actually just learn stuff that you wouldn't learn elsewhere it's, it, it, it makes it lively but um, let, let's just go move on to that question then about uh, and, and bring in really the theme of decolonization so you mentioned it already and I ought to say to listeners the way I came across you when I said I came across you on Twitter was actually in a discussion about decolonization of resources so, so what, what, what do we need to know there about about what we mean by decolonization in that in that context, uh, and and then we can perhaps move on to how you know well how do we go about it? How do we access? Okay, this well, I, I'm, my 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 mission at the moment is to create an elevator pitch for decolonization. I am working on it. It's um, it's a very large, very well discussed subject at the yeah. moment. It's, there's a lot of activity, but my elevator pitch so far is really that decolonization, it's, it's a very valued part of scholarship. And the reasons for this is it relates to the recognition, um, you know, that higher education at the moment, in the past, has often been formed by Western colonialism and racism. You know, in the past, mm-hmm. our content that we've been collecting, it's been a little mm-hmm. bit narrow. And it only really gives mm-hmm. one view. This can make university quite a discriminatory place it can make it a little hostile if you're not from that western background which is what we really want to avoid you know we want to make it as inclusive as possible you know and the thing about decolonization for me that interests me is that it extends a lot more between making say a diverse reading list by just choosing lots of books right yeah it relates to processes you know it's very important that it's not the case that students, lecturers from a BME or BAME background should be making these changes. It should be us, the people who control the information, that should make this change. And they should identify resources Mm -hmm. and practices that effectively decolonize um, our resources, remove the historic um, bias that exists in our content. So that's my elevator pitch so far. A lot of discussion around about it, trying to get it as succinct as possible to get people interested. Well, I think at some point, we, at some point, I think we have to do an episode on elevator pictures because they're not easy and they require reiteration, don't they? You sort of grope your way towards getting the the, the ultimate uh, elevator pitch. But I certainly find this interesting. I mean, when I started the podcast, I had a whole range of. Um, I invented a kind of word cloud of possible topics. And I have to say, I, decolonization wasn't in there. I didn't use that word. And so I'm really interested to think, well, I, you know, w- w- we missed something out there. So, so I mean, uh, without going into, uh, you know, huge amounts of detail, then, so, so, so what's the next step? I mean, how, how do you actually help people to uncover this wider, richer vein of material? Okay, well, the first thing we did is we've started to attend those um that text there, which I just gave you, is actually 
readapted from some of the in teaching and the actual information given by Dr. Sunita Abraham and Dr. Richard Budd here at Lancaster. They're doing some really, really okay. important work here. They run, um, it's called Decolonizing Lancaster University Network, which looks at that. So we attended oh, those sessions to give us a bit more context as a new subject. Mm. What we did then is we then looked at what is available. What resources can we identify? So the first thing, again, we looked at our way we search grey literature, because it's really important that grey literature is searched in a decolonized manner. First things first, um, Sarah Bernardo's book was absolutely useful, incredibly useful, um, because that's all about Google searching. So the first thing we did is produce really good decolonized Google searching guidance. Right, yep, yep. But then we said, well, we, we need to be able to search the grey literature better, because Google, unfortunately, is a little bit slanted towards large NGOs, I would imagine. Companies which have fantastic website designers. You can imagine smaller websites are not going to be as prominent in that. So what resources can we look at that will be useful? So we talked to our researchers, we talked to our students on what do they need. We identified two different resources, um, which is called Overton.io and uh, Policy Commons. And so we evaluated them. So we've recently purchased Overton.io as a great searching database. Um, really, really useful. Right. It helps to search through just grey literature. And we're considering policy commons, but at the moment, right. Overton.io won out for one simple reason, okay. which was it was able to search through regional gropings. Uh, interesting, yeah. yes. And I thought, that is interesting. But then it came back to the concept of internal external validity in your research, which is you want to go and search for similar guidance, similar grey literature in regional areas. So you'd want mm. to search through Arabic countries, or you'd want to search through Brazil mm. or South American countries. And you want to filter your search in this way, which isn't always common in databases, but was in Overton.io. Yeah, so it, an incredibly useful um, feature, which allows you to limit just to similar countries with the same cultural, financial or religious Backgrounds, mm. <clears throat> and that yes. makes your grey literature more applicable, more useful. Mm. Well, it reminds me actually of um, going back. I would say ten years, maybe fifteen years now. I ran a training course at Cambridge, and one of the researchers was called Jokey Wamai from Canada, uh, from Kenya. She was one of the became one of the founders of Black Cantabs, and she realised as a publisher in those days, and she said that you should really latch on to the kind of there's really good research coming out of African universities. And it's not really getting picked up by the rest of the world. And I was really interested in that from a commercial point of view, to be honest. I didn't really have the skills to follow it through. I mean, I did go away and try and think, well, <laughs> what's she talking about? Where is this research? I didn't do it all well. But actually, there wasn't that kind of guidance available in my defence to actually find the stuff. So thank you. I think it's a fascinating area. I think it's fascinating both to hear your general approach to grey literature, but also the decolonisation theme and the fact that it's evidently part of a wider thing at at uh, Lancaster University. So I'm very grateful to to you um, coming on the show and telling us about it. And I'm sure listeners, it's something that the, a lot of listeners will be wanting to follow up on. So uh, thank you very much. Much appreciate your help and, and the guidance today. Thank you for the invite. Thank you. thank you, everyone, for listening. 
Greylit Cafe is edited by Dr. Bart Hallmark and produced by Frontinus Limited. Frontinus specialises in grey literature forms such as proposals, publications, papers and reports. The music is from Handel's Water Music, courtesy of the United States Marine Band and Marine Chamber Orchestra. Thank you.